Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We are so excited about Marianne's guest this week. She has not stopped talking about it, and for good reason. You may have heard of the truly incredible decision made by the City Council in Berkeley, California recently to take important steps toward the divestment of animal products in city purchasing. Marianne will be interviewing Almira Tanner of Direct Action Everywhere about this remarkable development. It is seriously so cool. I honestly think I'm more excited about it than than she was. <laughs> like I just think it's amazing. It's not only amazing, it's so replicable. Really, yeah. anybody could do this anywhere. And I just think it's the, one of the most powerful things I've heard of in a long time. So mm-hmm. super excited. I also, I loved everything she had to say. And on this week's Flock bonus segment, I'll be continuing my conversation with Elmira. As always, if you're a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this episode goes up. Or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you are not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you're a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls. We just had one that just passed. It was really fun. They go up once a month on, of course, the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, where we focus on how to be better activists, how to take care of ourselves. We speak to some inspiring guests, including uh, recent podcast guests. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. Oh, and don't forget, if you're in the Flock, you can set up one-on-one meetings with me as well. Email Jen to find out more about it at jen at ourhenhouse.org. We can talk about your activism, your veganism, or just what's going on. So speaking of what's going on, you've been visiting me in Rochester before you close in your house. So that's been lovely. And I I really appreciate the fact that you're always trying to get me out of the house. Like I have become such a homebody in the pandemic, just like sort of agoraphobic. Like I'm just going to stay in. I'm good, you know, and there's still so much to do to unpack. But you're like, let's go out. Let's go for a walk. Let's go do something fun. And I need that. So I just want to say thanks. Yeah, well, especially with the pandemic, you know, being very unclear about about what the future is going to hold. I think it's a really important time because we can we can go to a restaurant and eat outside and I feel pretty comfortable doing that. I'm not sure I'm going to, this might be another winter of not being able to go to restaurants and eating inside. I don't know. I'm not predicting anything, but you know, things haven't been great of late. So yeah, I, I, I not just for you, but for myself and for everybody out there, get out of the house. It really, it really does change your perspective. Great, huge, huge monumental news from Marianne Sullivan. Leave the house. <laughs> but I, I'm such a cranky pants when it gets like above 80 degrees. I just, uh, I don't know how I lived in LA for those years, but it's been so hot here and I am so used to blasting the AC. I'm like, I'm like blasting you guys out of the house with my AC because I love it. And Taking a really dark turn for a second, I, like I can't handle that heat, and I can just go right back inside to my air conditioned whatever and, house. And I just like to add, it's it's really not that hot. Like it's it's ridiculous. It's the this house is like a a freezer. 
<laughs> but go well, on. Well, thankfully we're getting geothermal soon, which I'll keep everyone posted about our eco, uh, our, our eco efforts to make the home energy independent. But that being said, you were telling me about this, this, this alert, this blog, which is from HSUS about how these pigs are being kept in complete horrible heat and, and completely inhumane conditions. So we thought we would chat about it for a minute. Cause I think that there are, there are some interesting different things that this type of campaign brings up. Do you want to just sort of lay out the groundwork? I mean, I think it's something that pe- most people have heard about. It's the absolute horror, absolute unbelievable horror. What happened at the beginning of COVID when they decided they needed to quote unquote depopulate pigs, which means, you know, kill them, murder them, uh, because the supply chain is so tight that as soon as there was a disruption in it, they just had, you know, too many pigs and not enough slaughterhouses and whatever. So they decided they needed to get rid of them. So they decided to depopulate them, talk about Orwellian. So they turned up the heat. Uh, that's pretty much what they did in the places where these where these poor, poor animals lived. And you already know this. We don't have to go through this. But the thing that I found particularly shocking this week was this, uh, yeah, this blog from HSU is talking about how 3,000 vets who are members, of, many of them are members of the American Veterinary Medical Association, and most vets are members. And, you know, I've I, I have complained about the AVMA, as have many activists for years, uh, but this is the worst thing I've heard for a while. So these 3,000 vets petitioned the AVMA to take a stand against depopulation by ventilation shutdown, uh, just like smothering these pigs in heat and lack of air. And some of them took hours to die. It's kind of like leaving, as, as this points out, leaving a dog in a hot car, only on purpose and by the millions. Uh, and so this would seem like a reasonable request of a veterinary association. And they didn't just do it. What they did was they, they decided to um, not take action right away on the petition and instead refer it to a panel for further, re- what the hell further research do you need when you hear that this is what they do to kill pigs? There's just no depths to which people will not sink when it comes to animal agriculture. This is just horrifying, absolutely horrifying. They want more research in advance of the meeting. Uh, And apparently they currently have guidelines for the quote-unquote depopulation of animals. They're not willing to revise them to to eliminate this, this just like horror that they're subjecting these animals to. I think it's horrible. I think it's a disgrace. I think the AVMA is all too frequently a disgrace. And I think that everyone should bring this up with their vet. I think everyone should always wonder with with their vet whether they're a member of the AVMA and whether they're on board with uh, a lot of these policies. Because what I've found in the past is that a lot of small animal vets they're members of the AVMA because it's kind of, you know, an important professional organization and it has it has benefits for vets, but they just don't. It's not that they're in favor of this. They just don't pay attention to it, but it's in their names that this is being done. So, yeah, that made me crazy when I read that. You know, hearing you talk about it now, it is my first reaction. <laughs> I have to admit my first reaction when we were talking about this before was like, this sounds like a welfare campaign and I'm not particularly interested in welfare campaigns, but as I think Elmira talked to you about in your interview, we, you know, regarding the sort of difference between welfare campaigns and liberation campaigns is 
uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't want to do anything now that we later have to undo. And so, you know, maybe welfare reforms falls under that uh, umbrella, but, but this is different. I don't get that at all. I mean, regardless of that very interesting conversation I had with Elmira, I don't think it's a welfare campaign to point out and to make public and to try to get stopped something horrific that's happening to animals. It might be a right. welfare campaign if you were petitioning for them to substitute some other less horrible way of killing pigs. But we don't have to go there. This is like right. to say it's a welfare campaign is like saying bringing attention to gestation crates is a welfare campaign. Well, I agree. This is bringing attention. I mean, whatever they want. Yeah, I, if they want to ask me what they should do to substitute for it, yeah, I know what to tell them. And animal agriculture. That's my opinion of how they should substitute. But, you know, I'm not suggesting that they substitute some other me- method of murdering pigs. I'm just suggesting that this is horrifying and it's a disgrace. And and people who are supporting it should at least know about it. And, you know, if I had a vet who thought this was fine, I'd want to know. I totally agree. I mean, you just explained it better than I could have, as usual. But I, that was kind of the point I was going to make was like, I had to check myself because I heard HSUS and I immediately went, ooh. And then I heard like something going on with pigs that required, I don't know. I just had this sort of knee jerk reaction. Like it wasn't a liberation campaign. It wasn't vegan advocacy campaign. It wasn't something creative to save animals. And I I had to check myself like, okay, this is actually still a really, really horrible thing. And fighting against this does not mean that I am selling my soul to be a a welfareist. So anyway, I just wanted to, I just wanted to call myself on that. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got a campaign that I am so excited about. It's the no shit food movement, (laughs) which is basically uh, going on now in the Netherlands and its goal is to make vegetables vegan. And I couldn't love this more. I could not possibly be more excited about this. Well, the thing that's best about it, obviously, is the name. I mean, we've heard of veganic agriculture many times, but I think calling it no shit agriculture is just the best thing that ever happened. This is an article from Vegconomist. And if you are not uh, signed up to Vegconomist, you need to do that because if you want to keep on top of the food world at all and what's new in the food world and really positive takes on it, enormously helpful uh, newsletter. So aside from that plug for Vegconomist, yeah, this is a, this article. And apparently, as Jasmine said, this is in the Netherlands. And uh, this is because in Germany, Switzerland, and Greece, there's already a, a label for veganic vegetables, biocyclic vegan, and which is not nearly as catchy as no shit. So in the Netherlands, they want to catch up and they want to have some kind of, some kind of uh, label or, or certifying or uh, organization uh, that will tell people which of their vegetables are veganic. Uh, You know, I I can't even imagine having such a thing here. Like it's so hard to choose between buying conventional agriculture vegetables and and organic, which automatically uses manure. Like it's just uses animal part. Well, anyway, so what we need is veganic and what we need is labels so we know we're buying veganic. And so, yeah, the no shit food movement is uh, is taking off and I want it here. It's really, really important. This is a really important piece of the whole puzzle because even if everyone switched to a plant-based diet, if we're, buy- if we're making it standard organic the way they do now, we would still need all that shit because mm-hmm. uh, that's what they use to fertilize it. Mm-hmm. And apparently all of the research is good. 
that um, soil structure and biodiversity improve and the crops grow well with less water. Like they've done a lot in, in this direction to make it possible to grow vegetables really, really well without using cow poop. So it was inspiring, but perhaps my favorite thing about it is the name. I totally agree. We try to do veganic agriculture as much as we can here, you know, but we don't do it all the time because we don't grow our own food. Remember Ben, who Ben is like our tech guru at our hen house. He's still for since the beginning, he lives in Tucson and he belonged to a CSA that was veganic. Remember that? No, I don't remember it. And I'm so jealous. Yeah, that's what, yeah. I, that's what I want. That is great. I've put composted in the past uh, because I've been renting the past year. I haven't composted at all. But of course, composting is the hugely important piece of veganic agriculture. And I intend to start again. But we just got our composter. Okay, it's not built yet, but it came in the mail finally. So we'll keep you posted on the composting adventures. So let's get to the interview because there are just a few times lately that you have been so lit up about doing an interview. And today is one of them. And so I cannot wait. Elmira Tanner is the lead organizer of Direct Action Everywhere, a grassroots network of animal rights activists working to achieve revolutionary social and political change for animals in one generation. She is currently facing seven felony charges for rescuing animals and investigating factory farms in Sonoma County, California. She will be joining Marianne right after this. Jasmine here. We're so excited to announce the upcoming release of the groundbreaking new book, Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation, published by Lantern Books and Media. Inspired by Encompass's racial equity trainings, this collection of essays was written by farmed animal protection leaders, myself included, who are committed to exploring and prioritizing racial equity as we work to create a more effective and just animal protection movement. We wish to document our stories and processes in an exploratory space from which we can grow and use our words to hold ourselves and our peers accountable, ultimately creating new paths forward. I'm lucky enough to be the editor of the book. The only way to be an effective animal activist is to prioritize anti-racism within our advocacy. This essay collection will provide a new, necessary way forward. Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation is new as of September 2021 and is a collaboration between Our Hen House, Encompass, Sentient Media, and Lantern Books and Media. And we've got even more exciting news. Our Hen House is honored to roll out an audio series of the book, launching this October 2021. Narrated by the essay authors themselves, the four-part series will air every Thursday throughout October. This will be in addition to our regular podcast schedule, of course. We cannot wait to share it with you. To find out more about the book and to pre-order it, visit encompassmovement.org slash book. That's encompassmovement.org slash book. Welcome to our hen house, Elmira. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. 
It is a pleasure to have you. I'm super excited. As soon as we heard about, I think I might be more excited about this, this achievement than anybody I know. As soon as I heard it, I said, I have to have somebody on. And I was told you were the person to have on. You know all about it. You made it happen. But before uh, I get ahead of myself, let's just have you tell us what happened in Berkeley. When did you start this campaign? What was the original goal? Yeah, so this has been a long campaign, and I'll certainly say it was not just me, a huge team effort from a lot of people at Direct Action Everywhere and a lot of coalition partners. And the vision was to get the city of Berkeley to stop spending city funds, our taxpayer dollars, on animal products for all the obvious reasons that I think a lot of your listeners know. And we started this campaign actually in March of 2020, which is when something else really big happened. We basically decided on this campaign and then the whole world changed. And in a sense, it became even more important that this happened for all of the reasons we know about why animal agriculture contributes to pandemic diseases and a lot of people talking about that and workers and slaughterhouses. But it also became a lot more difficult. Uh, city council stopped meeting in person their ability to do much beyond just the immediate addressing of the pandemic limited. So it's been about 16 months, but it's been a very strange 16 months in the world. And I think that's one of the reasons why this campaign took as long as it did. But in summary, basically what we were trying to do and what we eventually did get to some extent was getting the city of Berkeley to not spend any of their money that they spend on food on animal products and switch all of those purchases to plant-based foods. Why you would say 16 months was a long time for this. I can't believe you achieved it at all. It's a huge, huge achievement. So I'd be interested to know what tactics you did use that both in the way they were the same as tactics you have used in the past in campaigns and ways in which they differed because of the pandemic. Yeah, so I think a lot of people see direct action everywhere and they think of protests and maybe disruptions and civil disobedience. But ideally, campaigns never even have to get to those stages because you just make a reasonable request to the city council and they're like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. We shouldn't be supporting this (laughs) horrible industry. And then they do it. And that's how we started. I think all campaigns should start with like good faith education, negotiation. We wrote letters did public comment, uh, you know, on Zoom to the city council. We delivered postcards. Like we got everyone in our community to write little postcards that got mailed to the city council councilor's house with information about the devastating impacts of animal agriculture. And in a sense, that was quite different because of the pandemic. Because if the pandemic hadn't been happening, we would have been able to just go to you know, their offices in City Hall, we would have been able to show up in person at city council meetings and none of that was possible. So we delivered postcards to their houses, which sometimes they didn't like very much or uh, tried to get on public comment on Zoom, those sorts of things. And at the same time as this was happening, San Francisco was kind of doing a similar process. We came in a little late to that and we, we were kind of diverting our energy between San Francisco and Berkeley. San Francisco did eventually do some divestment of their funds, uh, 15% in the hospitals and 50% in the jails. And then when that passed, we kind of were like, all right, let's really focus our energy on Berkeley and make them do even better. And, you know, then the the Berkeley elections were happening. So the, the mayoral race was happening, you know, in November, October, November of last year. 
I think maybe some folks know Wayne Shung, the co-founder of Dixie, ran for mayor. So that kind of added a whole other layer of interesting elements to this campaign when we're like, our co-founder is running against you, but we're also trying to target you to do something. And so once that was all over, Wayne, did, Wayne didn't win. Did get a respectable 24% of the vote, though. But it wasn't until January of this year that we really started escalating. We're like, we've been trying to be so nice. We've been writing all these letters just really completely ignored by the city council, by the mayor. And in January, we kind of started escalating to to protests and more direct action. So I think you've kind of talked about this, but I once read this book and I wish I could remember what, what it was, but uh, it was about activism. And the writer of the book thought that activists too often cultivate friendly relationships with legislators. They want to be pals. When the attitude that they should always be cultivating is fear. They, you, you want to be feared. That's so much more powerful than being liked, as we all know. So does that resonate with you? I mean, of course, you started friendly, but ultimately you turned to protest. So does that idea resonate with you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, hopefully not like fear of bodily harm. We always strive to be no, nonviolent. No, that's but not what was meant. It was fear, of, fear of affecting election chances, I think, yeah, is what absolutely. was meant. Yeah, absolutely. And I I do think, though, that it is important for people to start with that good faith because it gave us the moral high ground, at least in my opinion, when we did resort to protests. And we resorted to doing weekly protests outside the mayor's house, which is quite confrontational. And I think if you just kind of start like first protest and you're outside his house, people are like, that seems unjustified. But when you're like, well, we've been trying to talk to him for almost a solid year and he's completely ignored us. This is the only way we can get his attention. And it was true. It was only until we protested outside his house that he finally started responding to us. Then I think people understand a little bit more. So I do think that politicians, their job is to get reelected. And if you can make them look really bad in the media or make them look like they are not following through on their commitments, I do think that they are a little scared of the protesters. And I do not think the city council wanted to right, you know, 100, the goal of 100% into this resolution. They really didn't want to do it, but they did it because they didn't want us to keep protesting them. In fact, we actually, I don't know if we'll get to this, but we basically had to make an agreement with them. We were negotiating with the mayor and the city council through kind of a third party, basically saying, hey, we'll we'll hold off on our protests on this campaign if you put this 100% language in there. And, you know, the night before the vote, we finally got, okay, it's a go. Like, we're good on this agreement. So I think they were a little scared of what the public would think of them, what their constituents would think of them, and what that would mean for for their future as an elected official. Yeah, and I want to get to that 100% because that's part of the, what your initial goal was divestment. So what did you ultimately end up getting? Yeah, and I think we're using divestment incorrectly, essentially. (laughs) You know, I think a lot of people think of divestment as, what they're investing their funds in. And we wanted to make it even more like direct what you're actually spending your money on just because it's a catchy word that people understand. Of course, our goal was 100% divestment by like what we think is reasonable, like say 2023. The Berkeley City Council does not spend that much money on food. Berkeley is not a hard place to get plant-based food. Like it's not difficult. They could totally do this by 2023 with a couple contract changes. What we ended up getting was resolution. So it is not a law. And it means that we are going to have to make sure that we are on top of them following through on this. 
It's 50% by 2024 with a goal of 100%. Like they set that goal, they don't have a date and they have to come back to us or the public with a date by next year, like middle of next year. And then also a progress report by January 31st, I believe, of next year on how they're doing with the 50%. And the thing that's really interesting with this is the city of Berkeley, I don't even think they know what food they're buying. Like we were trying to get this information, like who are your suppliers? Where does it come from? Partly so we could show them how terrible they were and partly so we could be like, here's an alternative to basically replace whatever you're serving, you know, Mm -hmm. in the meals. They didn't know. Like we got Freedom of Information Act requests that came back and it just said like lunch burrito, you know, like and and even when the council was interviewed after this resolution passed, they were like, we don't even know really what we're buying. So it's kind of complicated, which is just shameful. Like nobody could give us an answer. How do you not even know what our city funds are supporting? But yeah, so I think it's definitely going to be some work. It's not a done deal. We're going to have to make sure that we're making, you know, on top of them, getting them to follow through. But I think even just the symbolic nature of getting the 100% in there is really important so that people kind of have the strong signal that animal agriculture is 100% wrong. It's not, oh, let's make it a little bit better or, you know, meatless Mondays or whatever. Like, no, this whole system needs to go. We need to transform our food system. And I think that's probably why the press, especially the vegan world press, got really excited about this. No, I think it's exciting because it's it's huge. I mean, I don't think, and I I do like the use of the word divestment, though I see your point. It's actually more direct, but the word divestment has such a history mm-hmm. within activism as a way to achieve change. So, so there is something really attractive about it. What do they spend? I mean, you said you had trouble finding out, but what are they spending their money on that has that comes from animal agriculture, basically. Yeah, so it is very limited what the city of Berkeley spends just because Berkeley is actually quite small, but they, I mean, first of all, they buy food for themselves. So all their meetings and their staff events, including what they're feeding the cops. So it makes me happy to think all these cops are grumbling about having to eat veggie burgers, but also <laughs> what they serve, senior center, <laughs> like rec programs, the rec centers, the jails, just one jail. But yeah, what it doesn't apply to is schools because the schools are regulated by like a different entity, like the school board. So that would be possibly something to move towards in in the future. And I think about this a lot in terms of the fur ban progression in in California. I mean, West Hollywood was first, then there was like this long delay. And then in 2017, Berkeley banned fur. And people were like, well, that's silly. No, like, I don't think a single piece of fur was sold in Berkeley. (laughs) We're like, that doesn't matter because now then San Francisco did it. And then the state of California did it within two years. So I kind of see this as a test case. And maybe the county is next or I mean, imagine LA doing something like this would be just huge, the amount of money that would be taken out of the industry. So mostly using this as a, you know, it's like, it's a true victory, but also like a good symbolic victory as well. That kind of shows other cities that they don't have to be first. They can follow. It's not that scary. They can go ahead and do it. That's exactly right. And it's always smart to start in a place that is not huge and not spending enormous amounts of money, Banning things in places where they're not happening at all is sometimes the best first step because it's so unrisky for the legislators. They're not losing anybody. So I think it was a perfect place to start. And exactly, that's exactly right. It started like there is a city. All right. It's Berkeley. And that, that holds a certain, 
quality to it. But still, there is a city in the United States that has done that. The next city to do it will not be breaking grounds, which I think is so powerful. Now, if you read the resolution, which I did, you would think it was completely motivated by climate. And how important is the, the kind of the growing awareness of the danger to the climate from animal agriculture? You know, I know that you're focused on all of the harms of animal agriculture and you're intensely focused on the harms to the animals. But how important is it? And do you use climate particularly to convince stakeholders that animal agriculture is a is a climate disaster? Is that one of your key messages? Yeah, in this campaign, it definitely was, partly because, you know, Berkeley, relatively progressive, all of the people who ran for re-election in this last campaign had a big climate platform. They're saying all these great things about Berkeley being climate neutral by like 2030 or whatever, which is just, how can you be climate neutral if you're supporting like one of the top contributors to climate change? Um, That being said, we still want to obviously bring the animal's perspective in there, which is why I think it's so important that we're pushing for not, you know, a reduction or, you know, that's what it ends up being, but we're not saying it's okay if you eat animals sometimes or it's okay if the welfare is better. It's like, no, this is wrong for all these reasons, but you also have to be realistic knowing at this point in time, legislators are not going necessarily going to make law based solely on their care for animals, which is really sad. But I think there's a lot of work we can do in that area to push them to consider animals more. But climate is a huge thing, especially because, yeah, a lot of people saying a lot of good things, a lot of good statements, words on campaign websites and holding them to actually following through on those, I think is a good way to get them to to take action. Yeah. And as we all know, like particularly with the health arguments up until recently, that was sometimes the forefront argument, but not everybody, but a lot of people, once they start stop eating animals and become more used to being vegan, the animal argument does become stronger for them. So Mm -hmm. I think there's always hope in that. It's not abandoning the animals. And I noticed that the mayor himself threw in the animals when he talked about it. So that was nice to say. Yeah, it's so I've had a couple Zoom conversations with the mayor. It's very interesting because face-to-face or, you know, on Zoom, super nice and really like, I'm a champion for the animals. You know, he he comes across as genuinely, genuinely caring about animals and talking about how, you know, Berkeley's always led the way in this area. Then kind of behind the scenes or to other people, says not very nice things about us, which is maybe kind of where that fear element comes in to face to face. He's super nice. But yeah, some great words saying, you know, Berkeley's always been on the forefront of the humane treatment of animals. And great. I love to hear him say that. So we can even better hold him accountable to keeping that up. Like what's next? Um, What are you going to do? Are you actually going to follow through on these things? Yeah. And the, yeah, of course, the animals are the only complete argument. Mm-hmm. Cli- you know, you can you can have chicken instead of beef and that's better for the climate. Like you hear arguments like that all the time. The animals are the only argument that say, all right, get out of this completely. I do find that really interesting. Like the, that book is coming back to me. I have to find out who wrote it and talk about it because that was exactly the point that they will always act like they're your friend because that's what they do. They're politicians. This isn't an evil, you know, that's how they function. But it's, but it's difficult because it's not, it's not fun to be strongly disliked, you know, when you're having public no, comment no. and the city council is like, I don't know if I'm allowed to start like shitting on you in front of everyone who's <laughs> listening to the city council meeting. We have a city councilor 
in Berkeley who tweeted really horrible things about us. He said, we are a fundamentally unserious organization, called us idiots. You know, like this is our elected representative. And so it's not fun to have that. And so it's good to remind her to be like, okay, we're, remember, we're not in this to be popular. We're in this to win. But it does kind of create, I think, some tension with other groups that are playing a different role in the movement, which is also important. Like there are some groups, I think, that genuinely are friends with legislators. And that's great to have. And they're like, what are you doing? You make us look so bad. And they're like, you know, I'm like, oh, we all got to do, we all got to play our our roles in this movement. So, yeah, no, I am all for that. Like, and I, I admire the people who are willing to take on that dislike. And that is definitely a sign that you're winning when they start getting, the ad hominem attacks are definitely <laughs> a sign that, that they don't know what else to mm-hmm. say. I feel like, you know, I've been paying attention to this movement for a while. And it used to focus its legislative efforts on federal or sometimes state legislatures. But we have seen so much more progress at the local level. I mean, as you pointed out, the fur movement started very small and then now is like really spread. And circuses certainly got nowhere for so long. And then kaboom, you know, as soon as we started to see those local laws and make it impossible for them to drag those poor animals around the country, they started to fold. So do you think local is the way to go and then it can spread out around the country? Is that an important strategy for this movement? I mean, in my opinion, absolutely. I think that locally you have so much more, especially as a grassroots organization, we don't have lobbyists. We don't have you know, these strong political connections that I can just go up to Cory Booker and have him, you know, talk to me. But locally, you have you have the ability to have a huge impact. You can meet your city council person. You can mobilize. You mobilize 100 people to a city council meeting. They're impressed. And you can, like you mentioned earlier, those victories that are mostly symbolic, maybe you're banning slaughter in a city that doesn't have slaughter or something like that, then all of a sudden, those victories can spread to a lot of other places. And, you know, we've done a couple things now in San Francisco and Berkeley, mostly symbolic things like this resolution that supported animal rescuers. We got Berkeley and San Francisco to do them. And it was very fascinating to see both of them were kind of looking at what the other person was doing. So San Francisco's like, well, is Berkeley going to pass it like this? And Berkeley's like, what's San Francisco going to do? Nobody really wants to be first. So if you just have to like find that place where you can exert some power, get one place to do it, and then everyone else kind of goes along, which is in a sense sad. Like people should want to be first. Like wouldn't you feel amazing if you were the first person to like end segregation or allow marriage equality? Like what a victory if that was you. But the reality of the situation is politicians are scared. They don't want to take too many risks. They they want to get reelected. So they're looking to see what other people are doing. And I think that with local politics, you can have a huge impact. Well, having spent my life around lawyers, I can tell you nobody wants to be. <laughs> all, all lawyers do is copy what other people did and, and put their own facts in it or whatever. But yeah, being first is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, can, you can screw up so bad. So speaking of this, would you suggest that listeners, this is something that listeners who are politically active or who want to become politically active in their communities pursue this strategy? Would you like to see this spread? I think so. I think that this is, uh, especially with this campaign or similar things that you can like really, it's something that the city can truly do. Sometimes it's hard to think about what could the city of Berkeley do for animals? There's no factory farms. There's no slaughterhouses in Berkeley. It's a very urban place. What could they do? Well, they can change the way that they're spending their money. And yeah, I think 
It's as, it's as simple as trying to figure out, or at least, I don't know if all of the city councils are the same across the country, especially in other countries, it's different. But look at who is in, on your city council, who's the champion, who's adopted a dog, you know, who like who says something about animals in their bio and set up a meeting with them. It's a lot harder during COVID, but it's not impossible. And just talk to them. You could bring them the press that, you know, this said, hey, look, Berkeley did this thing. Would this be something that you would be willing to do? And a lot of times, like the questions they ask, you know, the questions we got from the mayor, it's kind of frustrating, especially if you've been vegan or plant-based for a while and you kind of know this stuff and they're asking you like, can it really be nutritionally adequate? You know, what, like all these, what do people eat? You have to just say, okay, yeah, I'm going to get you that statistics. I'm going to get you the study. I'm going to compare the protein. They just need to know that because it's their responsibility to, you know, provide healthy food to people. We know it's healthier. We know you can be just fine, but those are the types of questions that they're probably going to ask. And if you have that information and kind of can point to what other people have done, I think there's some cities that will be able to follow pretty quickly. And our plan is hopefully in the next couple of weeks to host a little webinar on like very specifically what it takes to um, do something like this, or at least get it started in your city so that people can try it out in their areas. That's excellent. That's so great to hear. I usually ask this at the end, but let me ask it now. How can people stay aware of, of what you're doing and find out more about that webinar? Where do they find you? Yeah, I think if you just go and sign up for our mailing list at directactionnetwork.com, we'll send stuff. And then shameless plug at this, at this moment for the Animal Liberation Conference. We host a conference every year. Timing got a little weird this year because of COVID. And then last year, obviously, it got canceled and moved online. But we're going ahead with it in person. What that looks like is up in the air a little bit, you know, with with the Delta variant. But that's like where I think we're going to have a lot of incredible people that you can learn from. For example, Evan Wolfson, the architect of marriage equality, like who really changed that entire, the entire nation in that respect is coming to the conference. And like, we're going to be able to learn from him how we can use those lessons for animals. So coming to the conference end of September in Oakland, which is really close to Berkeley, that's a great way to learn. But if not, webinar will be in a couple weeks and you can just sign up on the website. Yeah, I had intended to ask you about that conference because it really does sound very exciting. Is there going to be any online component to it? At this point, we're probably going to live stream some of the panels, definitely live streaming the actions. But yeah, every week by week, it's like, oh my gosh, what's the COVID plan? You know, it's 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 a little up in the air, but we're trekking forward. Well, I trust your flexibility, but uh, I don't know how you plan any. I, plenty of conference is hell anyway, but how you do it when you have no idea whether people can go from one place to another is impossible. You know, you had mentioned talking about teaching people about veganism and how you have to hold your tongue. And you know, I remember Jasmine always tells this story about how somebody asked her once, but where do you get your protein? And she just went off on them. It's like, well, that's the stupidest thing. And then, you know, it suddenly dawned her in the middle of her tirade that this woman was actually asking, like, where do you get... People just don't know. It's so easy because we live in the vegan bubble, but we just forget that people are just as stupid as they've always been about uh, vegan nutrition. But more as a policy issue regarding veganism, you know, I've seen so much discussion online about whether people have to go vegan in order to be climate activists, even though they know that animal agriculture is a problem, or whether people have to, apparently people really don't want to go vegan. I know that's news to all of us, but what is the relationship for you between your personal veganism and the development of 
kind of institutional change? Do we all have to be vegan in, to, in order to fight for animals? And if so, why is it important? You've talked about this as symbolic change, but in a way, each time a person goes vegan, it's almost a symbolic change. I mean, because we're not actually influencing the number of animals killed. Yeah, that's kind of a hard pill to swallow sometimes. You know, I love those websites where you're like, I've saved this many animals, but I haven't really. I've now been vegan for 11 years and vegetarian for like 24 or something, but I've, you know, I don't think I've directly stopped any animals from being, you know, from being killed other than the ones I've physically rescued from slaughterhouses. That being said, I think not eating animals and being vegan is like a very powerful like expression of anti-speciesism. And it's like one of the ways I think that we can express our values in our day-to-day action. But at the same time, I do think that we won't be able to achieve the, the world we want to see if we're so focused on just making people change their diets one by one. I think we know the statistics. A lot of people go vegan and then they go back. And most of the time it's because they were socially isolated or they didn't find community or it was just too difficult, which is sometimes, you know, it's easy to roll your eyes at that a little bit when it's like, you can go to Burger King now and get whatever. But at the same time, I think the reality is we need to change the system. So if we, I really truly believe that everybody should get active for animals, regardless of where you're at in your personal journey. I know that not everybody agrees with that, but we've been able to have some incredible allies on our side who are not vegan. And I just think back to last year, one of the biggest investigations that we've probably ever done as a network, as Direct Action Everywhere, was when we successfully exposed what was happening in Iowa during the COVID pandemic with like the mass depopulation of pigs. And the ventilation shutdown was huge news. Everybody was talking about it. That wouldn't have been possible if we hadn't had a worker inside Iowa Select Farms coming forward and saying, like, I want to help you. This is messed up. This person's not vegan. And other people joining our movement, speaking up for animals who aren't there yet. And maybe their personal life, their personal consumer habits haven't changed yet. So I do think it's like a powerful expression of anti-speciesism. But at the same time, I think at times our movement has overemphasized this individual change, individual purity, whereas... I don't think the city council cared who was protesting outside their house to make this change, what they were eating. They just, you know, have this, this one change can affect way more people, I guess, is the way I'm trying to say that. But yeah, hopefully that was not too convoluted of an answer. <laughs> it's not an easy question. I ask a lot of people this question because I think it's such an important one. And and I thought that was a, a, an excellent answer. And I do notice also that one of the overall campaign messages for DXC is no more factory farms. And it's so interesting because I feel like the animal rights movement has fought among itself so long. Do we go for welfare reforms? Or do we go for... And some people would probably characterize it as a welfare reform measure, but it's not. It's just saying factory farms are bad. It's not saying small farms are good. Mm-hmm. You just seem to have... My point is, I guess, you seem to have elided that whole problem like a lot of people can be against factory farms. You can be a passionate vegan and think that all farming of animals is wrong. And you can also not be. It, it kind of, and you're not betraying yourself by by being against factory farms. Do you think that this is an important psychological step forward in the movement? Yeah, I think probably people see that No More Factory Farms campaign and they're like, wasn't DXC the people yelling about humane meat and whole foods? And I think we can do both you know, very specifically the No More Factory Farms campaign is asking the state of California to enact a moratorium, i.e. like 
stop building any more factory farms and slaughterhouses because it's absurd. They're being built and they're getting state money to build giant like slaughterhouses and factory farms in this day and age in California, which I just think is ridiculous. Like, you know, a little bit harder to solve the problem of what we do with all the ones that exist now, but we should absolutely not be building any more of them. And so that's like a very targeted campaign to, yeah, the public already agrees with you. Does the public think they're eating factory farmed animals? No, they think all these animals live these amazing lives. And that's kind of like where those other educational campaigns can come in. But I recently read this article that I am probably going to misquote, but I thought it was really great because I've been thinking about this a lot too. We want to achieve like revolution, but also we know that's going to take small steps. And so what sorts of reforms are appropriate when you're trying to completely overhaul the whole system? And one thing that really stuck out was they were saying kind of the best sort of revolutionary reforms are ones that won't have to be undone. And and I think about that, like, for example, the fur ban. Like, why is fur any different than leather? It's not. It's the same thing. They didn't even include sheeps in the fur ban, which was frustrating. Like, it's not an abolitionist law, but at the same time, it's not something that later we're going to have to go back and say, never mind, take it back. We actually don't want you to do this. We want you to do this. It's like, no, it's something you can build on. And so I think a lot about that a lot, whereas I want all factory farms and slaughterhouses to be shut down. But at the first step, at least we should not build more of them. And that's not something we'll ever have to go back and say, we didn't really mean that. We want to change it. So I'm trying to think now, okay, what other types of reforms can lead us to revolution that really are stepping stones to this and not something where we're trying to like modify it temporarily to maybe later have to say we have to undo all those changes. That's not to say that I think other reforms are terrible. That's just a bit like our approach to creating those changes. Yeah, well said. And I'm just going to tell a story because I can't help it. (laughs) Well, like when I first got involved, and I guess it was like in the mid-90s or something, I was involved with this very small, all the organizations were very small. It was a very small local organization in New York City. And I went to a meeting and there were like six people there, plus Henry Spirit and Peter Singer. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> did you know you were in that company? <laughs> no, I, at the, I, I did know them once I got there, but I didn't know they were going to be there. And I asked Peter Singer that question because it was huge then. It was huge then, like this conflict that was constantly in the movement, like, Do we go for welfare or, you know, what reforms are okay to work for? And he said, as long as they don't set you back, as long as achieving it doesn't set you back, which is similar, Mm -hmm. though not quite as well said as as what you just said. So I think we've been struggling with with this for a long time, and it's really unnecessary to struggle with it. We can set smaller goals than turning the whole world vegan, as long as they get us closer to that. So, yeah, it's always... It's a tough movement. It's a tough movement because you can only achieve very small things, but but the goals are so huge. Yeah, everyone in it is so passionate. You know, so of course we fight with each other because we're activists and yeah. we're the people who said, yeah, it is okay to speak up and be disruptive. And then surprise, we do that with each other too, which is, you know, I think hurtful, but also to an extent understandable. And I've recently been really thinking this concept of the movement ecology, if people are familiar, I think, I don't know if they coined it like Paul and Mark Engler. I don't know if they came up with it, but that's how I heard them, heard it from them. And just this idea that there's all these different theories of change that people are working towards and they all create this ecology. And most of the time that we're fighting, it's because 
we're in different pieces of the pie and we don't realize it. Or we, we think our piece of the pie should be the entire pie. And we're like, I can't believe you're doing that thing because it makes no sense based on what I'm trying to do, which is true. It's just that people are doing different things. So there's people out there doing the personal transformation work. There's people out there doing the alternatives work, like creating the new just egg and the, and the sanctuary work that is super important. And then there's also the people who are trying to change the whole system. And sometimes I think we all fight with each other, even though like we're just doing different things yeah. in this movement ecology. It doesn't solve all the problems, but I, whenever I'm like, oh, I try to think back. Okay. They're just doing a different yeah. piece of the pie and it's, it's okay. Yeah, I think that's hugely important because our movement has has wasted too much energy on each other, as I think all movements do. Mm-hmm. It's not just us. But all right, I, I also want to ask you, I hope it's okay if I ask you this a bit, because I know that you are facing criminal charges and, and I actually don't know what's been happening. It seems like everything got put on hold. I spoke to Wayne on the podcast a while back about the charges he's facing and others in, in DXC. So can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and what's going on? Yeah, so I think we have 13 cases now, so we're, we're racking them up, and they are mostly all delayed in the sense of, I don't know, you're the lawyer, so I don't know how much it's just par for the course that these things take forever, and then how much is COVID, but for example, the charges that I'm facing, which is seven felonies, and I actually don't even remember, I think five misdemeanors, the misdemeanors don't seem as relevant as the felonies in Sonoma County, which is about an hour north of San Francisco, Those charges came down in October of 2018 related to actions in May and September of 2018, and we haven't even had our preliminary hearing yet. So this has been almost three years. Our preliminary hearing is scheduled for September, but it's been scheduled like three times before and it's never happened. So Mm -hmm. it's easy to kind of say, oh, trials are a myth because every time we think they're going to happen, they don't. So these things have just been really taking a long time. And I think that's partly their strategy. I think the other side wins in the sense if we're all caught up in these court cases, and it's a lot of work to manage all of those and make sure defendants are feeling supported and do discovery and like evidence review and file all these motions. And I think it might be a way to kind of tie us up. So we're making sure that we don't fall into that trap of just, oh, we'll just wait until these cases are resolved until we do the next thing, because we would still be waiting from, you know, 2018 when all the all the charges came down that's really when they all started coming so we'll see we're hopeful that we have some trials or at least one or two trials this year of felony trials the one that might happen the soonest is the cases in Iowa where last year people went and exposed this ventilation shutdown actually rescued a piglet who was about to be you know quote unquote depopulated which is a nice euphemism And so two activists, Matt Johnson and Linda Cridge, are facing felonies for that case. And we're thinking their trials might happen September, October, November, but hard to to know for sure. And yeah, I think this is just another opportunity for us to insert animal rights into the conversation, you know, get people to really think about whether or not people who rescue animals should go to prison for a decade. Yeah, hopefully maybe set some informal precedent in court if some people are acquitted or there's a hung jury or something like that. That's what gets me really excited about all of these cases. 
Yeah, I mean, the potential for these cases is enormous, but it's also, I mean, you're risking an enormous amount Mm -hmm. in order to try to meet that potential. You didn't tell us the facts of the case at all. Can you just run through that quickly? (laughs) Yeah, so there is, I guess, probably in Sonoma County, that's the one you're probably referencing, which is the one I'm involved in. There's actually three actions that happened, and all of them are lumped in together. I have one less felony than everyone because I wasn't at the third action, but they all were daylight investigations, daylight rescues. So basically a couple hundred people, up, up to five, 600 people during the conference showed up at one of these farms that we previously investigated, seen horrible things going on in there, not surprising, just walked onto the property in broad daylight. And some people went inside the barns and started rescuing sick animals and walked out you know, sometimes right in front of the police who did not know exactly what was going on and didn't know what to do. That was at least the first action. The second action, the police were much more repressive. I think they thought these people are not going to get away with this again. It was this very long standoff. We were very lucky to have at least rescued one chicken, Rose, who was let go by an officer during during that standoff. But in all of these things, like the really interesting, interesting piece of this is like the people who are facing felony charges are not the people who went in and actually did the rescuing. Like, I wish I could be like, wow, I went in and I rescued all these animals. My role basically was like standing. (laughs) I stood on the farm property. So, okay, maybe there's a trespass charge in there. I didn't go inside any barns. I didn't touch a live chicken. We obviously didn't do any, you know, violence or, or damage to the barns or the farm. And what we think is they're just went after who they perceived to be in leadership to try to scare us. And in their words, like we actually have some recordings of some of their internal presentations, cut the head off the snake is literally what they said. So, you know, they just picked these random people that didn't even do quote unquote the theft and we've got all these felony charges and they think that that's going to make us stop. And that's the power of a grassroots movement is, you know, okay, I have this position of lead organizer, but I'm really not the person doing the vast majority of the work, there's like hundreds of people who are involved in doing this. And I know that if I end up in prison, it's not going to just end everything. There's a lot of competent, dedicated people out there who will keep fighting, maybe even more so with the outrage. So that's a bit of the facts of the case. I wish I could say I did something really glamorous, but it was mostly just standing there holding a clipboard, I believe. And it'll be interesting to see what evidence is presented in in court based on that. Yeah. It will be unbelievably interesting and and scary. And it sounds like there's like a selective prosecution defense. If they didn't, if they didn't arrest everybody there, and they only arrested the people that they wanted to get. So you have so many interesting defenses. I just wish that there wasn't so much risk involved. But you know, yeah, I admire the fact that you have exposed yourself to that and all of the work that you've done in the interim, and. It's just been great talking to you, Mary. You're a real inspiration. So thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's so amazing to finally be on our hen house. Uh, It's uh, something I've listened to a lot, especially when I first went vegan, had no vegan friends. So it feels like I've come full circle. It's very exciting. That makes me happier than anything that could possibly happen. I'm going to (laughs) take credit for everything you do from now on. Totally fine. Why not? Totally fine. (laughs) 
If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from the National Pork Producers Council. U.S. pork needs more access to foreign-born workforce. So this starts out by saying, despite competitive wages and an expanding workforce. Well, if their wages were competitive, they wouldn't. (laughs) I mean, competitive means that you have to pay enough to get people to do the horrible job. And obviously, they're not paying enough. I mean, I know there's, you know, supposedly a labor shortage, uh, but if you pay enough, That's the thing. If you pay enough, you can get people to work for you. Anyway, despite competitive wages and an expanding workforce, the U.S. pork industry continues to struggle with a labor shortage that will require access to more foreign-born workers to remain sustainable. And so this is what this is their problem. They they don't want to pay enough to get people to do this horrible work. So, as they point out, foreign-born workers have been critical to the U.S. pork industry's economic growth. This is according to some study that they just did. And, yeah, like, if you can find people who, you know, are uh, desperate, it's easier to exploit them, basically. That's what we're talking about here. So, they're not just talking about wanting to hire foreign-born people. That It's a little bit more complicated than that. Current, this is a quote, current visa programs designed for seasonal agriculture, such as the H-2A visa, fail to meet the workforce needs of U.S. pork producers and other year-round livestock farmers. To address the labor shortage, NPPC is advocating for year-round access to the H-2A visa program without a cap. All right. So this H-2A visa is for farm workers. You know, generally we think of these as people who are allowed into the United States to pick produce when the produce is ripe and then are escorted out. Now, there has been, there have been many complaints over the years that these H-2A visas are an invitation to exploitation. But now they not only want to do it for this, you know, the excuse was always, well, we don't have enough workers and, and this in that in that particular season. And this is seasonal work. So we can only get immigrants uh, to do this and blah, blah, blah. We need people we can exploit in order to do this. So uh, they want to do it year round because uh, this which doesn't have anything to do with the whole purpose of the H-2A visa, which was invented to bring in seasonal workers. Uh, they just want, you know, people and of course, the, these these visas mean that the employers have extraordinary control over the workers. Nice, you know, nice. So uh, your pork industry at work. All right, our next story. This is from meetingplace.com. California does it again. This is from the Meet Your Markets column by Matt Graves. And I don't know what California did before, but of course what they're complaining about now is that this is going to take place in January at long last California is going to implement the law, which, as he doesn't mention, was passed by ballot initiative that, quote unquote, severely restricts animal agriculture anywhere. Uh, This refers to eggs, pork and veal sold in California, 
quote, the law establishes minimum space requirements based on square feet for calves raised for veal, breeding pigs, and egg-laying hens and bans their sale as food if they are confined to areas below minimum square feet requirements. And as we all know, when they're talking minimum, they mean minimum. They mean barely enough room, but, you know, a little bit more room than they have in in other places uh, and would, would avoid the use of some of the worst confinement practices, such as the gestation crate. And according to Mac, and he's all upset about this, the cost to comply could raise bacon prices by 60%. Ah, would that it were true. I kind of doubt that it is, but would that it were. He talks about how how he used to go across the line from Oregon to Idaho to buy Coors beer. (laughs) I don't know what that has to do with anything, but I guess he's implying that people have to go across the line to get cheap bacon because, quote, bacon is under siege in California. You know, are there voices of reason somewhere in this debate? Or will it soon devolve into name-calling, as so many of us are waiting, wanting to do in this current political climate? Uh, yeah, I bet it will involve name-calling because you've tried every possible legal way to get around this, and none of them have worked. So this is happening, guys. This is happening. But, you know, what's upsetting about it is that, according to Mac, because, you see, it is profit that allows this great country of ours to continue. I guess, you know... <laughs> I think I, I, I wish I, I could say that I didn't think that that was what drove America. But yeah, profit pretty much is. And the laws must reflect reality. Uh, yeah, the reality is that that the people of California voted on this law and that, you know, animals are living creatures who need a little need. Well, they need a lot of space, but they at least need a little space. But this is the really good news. Mac thinks these California laws, quote, are precursors to our animal agriculture future. When you couple them with the plethora of alternative, quote unquote, meats currently available with many more on the horizon, the future for those of us making our living on bringing live animals to their ultimate fruition as nutritious human food is threatened. However, of more concern for me is the fact that many of the progenitors of these alt-meat companies have stated their specific purpose is to put animal agriculture totally out of business. Well, let's hope you're right, Mac. I don't know. Let's, let's just hope. All right, finally. This is an interesting one. This is uh, from Outdoor Life. The three anti-hunting arguments hunters should actually worry about. Quote, there are plenty of illogical ideas coming from anti-hunting organizations, but these three pose a real threat to hunters everywhere. Well, I hope they're right. I really do. He points out that uh, using varied tactics that at times seem reasonable to the uninformed, these anti-hunting groups divide hunters and sway public opinion in their favor. Because, you know, basically what they want is for any, they want all hunters to agree that all hunting, no matter how deviant is is fine and and sometimes you know there are people even people who want to find some of the things they do uh loathsome but the ones that he's talking about here the first one is that anti-hunters argue trapping is cruel <laughs> there's there's uh there's deceptive advertising if, if there ever wants one What anti-trappers don't tell the public is that in addition to helping manage all wildlife, trapping currently protects private property, our societal infrastructure, and food supply, while also protecting and recovering endangered species. In the first place, 
the claim here was that it was cruel. What none of those things have anything to do with whether it's cruel or not. But he does go on to to talk about there's there's live trapping done that sometimes biologists use traps on wolves, bears, cougars, and other predators and endangered species when conducting studies and relocating them. Best management practices for trapping have been developed. Like you know, I've I've seen the pictures, guys. Like, get over yourself. It's it's cruel. <laughs> it's cruel. And a hell of a lot of it ain't live trapping, that's for sure. All right, two, the other misconception. Anti-hunters argue that hunting in quote-unquote endangered animals is wrong. Well, kind of everybody agrees with that. But then they that what they get around to claiming is that subpopulations of species, such as black bears in Florida, should be listed as endangered. And, you know, like, this is a... a like, like, there are perfectly good arguments here. Whether or not it's endangered is up to the Fish and Wildlife Service. It's not up to you guys. Oh, nothing would be endangered. Then then they, they're all upset about animals in Africa claiming that they're endangered. And that leads us to our third uh, misconception on the part of anti-hunters. Anti-hunters argue that, quote unquote, trophy hunting is evil. Yeah, it seems like that seems... Uh, pretty obvious to me. And they point out that research shows that hunting as wildlife as a wildlife management tool enjoys broad support. All right. So they want everything to be categorized as a wildlife management tool. But obviously, when you're talking about trophy hunting, it's really hard to argue that. Using the trophy moniker, animal rights activists have pushed push legislation or ballot initiatives to ban coyote hunting techniques in more than a dozen states, hound or bait hunting of bears, and to dissuade hunting in Africa. In a completely illogical yet emotional leap, they've consciously connected Cecil the lion in Africa with North America's mountain lion. If it's trophy hunting, it's trophy hunting. You know, and then they say, well, sometimes we eat the animal in addition to getting the trophy. Yeah, that makes it so much better. As long as, as, long as you stuff your face with, with a dead animal, everything is fine. But, you know, it does give me great pleasure that there are these three arguments that are very strong. They're so strong that they're worried about them because their anxieties are indeed rising. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, you can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnston of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.